0: The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu.
1: Kind of a summary of a lot of the things we talked about. So if you remember in the beginning, he said you you can just start with a pit uh, and then it kind of develops with a lens. But from even here, you can go down two different paths. Either compound eyes where each sensor ha- or, or set of sensors have their own optics, like a soda straw, uh, or same lens, uh, sorry, same pixel might get imaged from multiple lenses, like here, right? So, that's superposition. So, this is opposition and this is superposition. Um, and that, that con- concept of opposition or superposition uh, applies to all three types, shadows or refraction or reflection-based uh, techniques. Uh, so we saw this last time, and, uh, you know, we'll see how, you know, we already have some projects that are inspired by, by biological vision. You know, Matt is trying the chicken, and... Uh, and uh, I think it's going to be, it's going to be most, it, it is going to be very popular and uh, I believe um, Santiago where is Santiago oh yeah he's trying the, um, the piston kind of you know so uh, it's really some really great ideas so I'm, I'm glad a lot of these uh, concepts are coming together in the final projects. So today we'll talk about uh, coded imaging um, and the concept here is is very simple okay so I'll start with this one. Uh, Which is, uh, you have uh, a a taxi zipping very fast, um, and you want to kind of take a photo in such a way that you can recover the sharp detail afterwards in software. So, it's a form of a co design between how you capture the image and how you process the image. In a typical uh, film camera or even a today's digital camera, you take the picture, and that's basically the end of the story. Uh, And here, you're trying to do something clever about how uh, the picture is taken. So, of course, you know, there are other opportunities of capturing this. You can either take a really, really short exposure photo, uh, but that's going to be very dark. If you take a high ISO, you know, you can recover some information, but still quite dark. Uh, Or you can just take a long exposure photo by keeping the shutter open, uh, but then you will get a a blurry photo, which is well exposed, but a lot of the high-frequency details are lost. And then if you try to apply uh, some de-blurring, uh, you'll get a result that looks like this, which is kind of reasonable. You can see the number one uh, on this, on this uh, uh, I guess, Thomas train. Um, uh, but you get a lot of banding artifacts and a lot of kind of repetition and noise here. So what are
2: those lines?
1: Uh, these lines? So when you try to recover uh, this information, you start getting these banding artifacts. And we'll see in the next slide uh, why that happens. So, what's going on here is that uh, if you have a, a, a sharp photo, uh, if, if you have a blurred photo, you can basically represent that as a sharp photo where it's there's a convolution of the sharp photo with some kind of a uh, convolution filter. Okay. So, if you look at... Where's my laser pointer? If you look at... If you look at this, uh, you know the tip of uh, letter one here, uh, it's been blurred by a certain number of pixels in the horizontal direction. And if you keep the shutter open for even longer, it will blur uh, correspondingly longer. So you have basically a 1D convolution that's converting this image into this image. And of course the goal usually is this is a photo that you capture and you would like to invert and get back this photo. Right? So, one would say, okay, um, this, multipl- this convolve with this gives me that. So, just deconvolve using the same filter and maybe you'll get that back. That doesn't work because something called division was zero. Okay. And the way to think about that is in the Fourier domain because convolution in the image domain or primal domain is multiplication in the Fourier domain. Okay, just standard Fourier opt- uh, Fourier transform. So, uh, if you take the Fourier transform of this and multiply that by the Fourier transform of this, you will get the Fourier transform of this. Okay. So, so let's say we take this photo, find its Fourier transform here, multiply that by the Fourier transform of uh, a box function, which is a sink. So, what basically that means is that I'm going to take the lowest frequency, multiply by that value. I'm going to take the next frequency, multiply by this value, next frequency multiply by this value, and so on, right? We're just going to multiply each of the frequencies in the image by the amplitude of the Fourier transform of this, okay? And you can already see that lower frequencies will be preserved, but higher frequencies will be highly attenuated, okay? But there's also something strange happening. Even some of the lower frequencies are actually being set to zero, okay? Which means that in this photo, these frequencies are missing altogether. They have been suppressed. So it's not a traditional low-pass filter. It's a low-pass filter where some of the um, uh, even lower frequencies are also being nullified. Which means that if I uh, try to recover from this photo, this photo, there's no chance because I've already attenuated uh, and, and have lost all those frequencies. So the moment you take the photo, the damage is done. And there's nothing you can do to recover those frequencies because uh, in the Fourier domain, all you have to do is take the Fourier transform of this and divide by the Fourier transform of this, which is this, and it will give you the original four, okay? But the Fourier transform has some zeros, so you cannot divide those frequencies by zero and recover uh, an image. So the culprit here is really this box function, which is equivalent to, you know, when you release the shutter, opening the, release the, uh, yeah, release your uh, shutter button, opening the shutter and keeping it open for exposure duration and closing it. But that's the most natural thing to do. But apparently it's not the most uh, effective. So what if you change that? What if you change that and instead of keeping the shutter open for the entire duration, you open and close it in a carefully chosen binary sequence. Okay. So for some time, the shutter is open, then shutter is closed. It's open for some time, again it's closed. Here it's closed for quite some time, open for a short time and so on. So at the end, you still get just one photo. But now, something magical has happened. Because, okay, first of all, if you look at this number one, you'll see that it's not the same as before. It has, it seems to have this replicas. Right? Um, and the reason why this is better… If you take the Fourier transform of this, it's actually flat, which means it's preserving all the frequencies in the image. So, we can be sure that in this photo, all the special frequencies, low frequencies, high frequencies, they're all preserved. Of course, they're attenuated, it's not as high as, you know, it's not 1.0, it's reduced, maybe it's 0.1 or so. So, they're all attenuated, but there's still some hope to recover this photo back from this, because in the denominator, we will not have zero, okay? So, of course, if you uh, try to implement this mechanically, where you, you know, open the shutter and then mechanically uh, try to close the shutter, that will be problematic. So, what we did was we used uh, an LCD, actually a ferroelectric LCD, that becomes opaque and transparent. And uh, in the old virtual reality screens or even some of the some of the games, you have this uh, eyeglasses that... Uh, flicker at, at 60 Hertz, so you know for time sequentially, so that you can see the left eye versus right eye. These are the same glasses. Um, and uh, a traditional city unfortunately doesn't have a very high, uh, very high contrast and Simon is uh, discovering that one more time, but the ferroelectric cities have, have a contrast of thousand as to one. So when it's opaque, uh, the amount of light that passes through as compared to when it's transparent and the amount of light it passed through. The ratio is one as two thousand. Okay. So when you when you when you turn this uh, ferroelectrical city off, it's really, really opaque. Yeah. How can you just do it with high speed video ish or just a
2: of taking video and put
0: out your frames in the
1: right order? So so the question was why not just capture high speed video and take all these frames? Right? And then put them together. The problem is each of the frame will be extremely dark. Mm-hmm. So you're you're basically adding up a lot of noise. Every frame is dominated by noise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when when the when the um, shutter is transparent, light goes through. When the shutter is opaque, light uh, doesn't go through. And that's your one zero one zero uh, encoding. Um, so again, the idea is very simple. Uh, instead of keeping the shutter open for the entire duration uh, and getting a well-exposed photo, the shutter is open for uh, only half of the time.
2: Yeah. You know, there, there is an issue there. Is uh, I mean the, the support for the, the representation the Fourier domain of that function that you described there mm-hmm. is infinite, right? So you're actually truncating this in order to. It's it not
1: it infinity brighter. because you still have some width.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, when you have uh, the, the the you know. Infinite high frequencies there by the, the sharp transition,
1: right? Uh, yeah, you can think. I mean, you can think of even this one goes to infinity, but there's hardly any energy left. Yeah. So although it goes to infinity, there's not much energy left. But then you're
2: gonna invert the process. Then I, yeah. that's why you still not getting the perfect image. You still, you know, has in this case, the, in, in in this case as well, you still lost some high frequencies. Right.
1: So so you haven't seen the results yet for for but this. You, case. you show the tax. Yes. So, this is what it looks in this case. But it's a very controlled experiment uh, in a laboratory. So, you take the toy and you move it in a very controlled way. um, And this is what you get in a traditional camera. And this is what you get in a flutter-shutter camera. So, these are real photos. So, Yeah, you're right. I mean, you still get some noise. And actually, if you compare this with ground truth, you'll see that it's okay, but it's not perfect.
2: Yeah, so, so uh, let's say that you took the zeros from uh, the sync function, right? Mm-hmm. And you just replace it by something that is pretty close to zero, but not zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you, you know, invert the process, then... From here, this is what you get. That's okay. It's, it's
1: this a de of this. Okay. Yeah, and that's... This... loss of these frequencies also shows up as this artifacts um, at regular frequencies, regular uh, intervals. So, again, this one, this doesn't go to infinity all the way. It cuts off at corresponding to the width. If the width of this uh, pulse was very short, then yes, it will go very far away. Okay. Yeah? The filter
0: is dependent
1: on
2: distance?
1: The filter is dependent on multiple factors, you know. So, if, you're, if your toy is moving or your taxi is moving really slow, then there is no need to, in this case, the sequence is... Sequences sequence was about 51, actually 52 entries, 52 vector long. So let's say your exposure time is about uh, 104 milliseconds. Uh, it's open for 2 milliseconds. Uh, here it's open for 4 milliseconds, off for 2 milliseconds, 4 milliseconds two. Maybe it's off for 8 milliseconds two, and so on. Yes,
2: sir.
1: But uh, with with a vector length of 52.
2: This is, uh, this filter is in, in time? In time. And you think about filter in
1: space? It corresponds automatically to filter in space. Yes,
2: yeah, so if I said it depends on distance, if you... Yeah, the speed, you mean. Object,
1: yes. So so your actual uh, blur in the image may not be exactly 52 pixels. It might be 10 pixels, it could be 100 yes. pixels. So your 52 vector is going to stretch or shrink yes. based on how fast the object is moving. No and problem. you're saying that it also depends on how far the object is in space because faster moving objects... And you mostly have to think about image space motion because the speed in the real world and the distance, are uh, they get, uh, yes. you know, you, you divide to normalize by the distance. Okay. So you only have to worry about the image space distance. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Could you get a uh, similar effect if you had, like, instead of a coded uh, shutter, a coded flasher? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So, if you're in a dark room, you can just... <laughs> if you're in a dark room, then you can just stroke the light rather than opening and closing the shutter. Hmm. I think we might have a mobile demo of that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know how fast you can shutter. See, the it. problem is you, yeah, you can't... Yeah. It it. yeah. Uh, so, what are some... Uh, let's, let's look at some pictures, actually. So, here is... Uh, Uh, a demo, I think I've shown it to you before. Um, This is on Broadway. It's in, Try to figure out the car make and the license plate number. What's the license plate number?
2: 4588 465
1: And the the company? Yeah. You know, so you, you get a reasonable result. Uh, so, but going back, what are the limitations of this method? Yes.
2: You need to know the motion, the direction of the motion.
1: You need to know, you know, you need to know the point spread function, how the blur is created. If the car is moving from left to right versus right to left, you need to know that, because the way your point spread function will be uh, imposed on the scene will be different. You lose half the light. Very important, right? So this the image is about half as bright as this one. What else?
2: I guess there should be a little less of an acceleration, or all of them should be yeah. the moving Exactly.
1: So the, the 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 whatever is moving has to move in a, at a constant speed. Mm-hmm. If within the hundred millisecond it picks up speed, then your assumption that the 52 length vector will map to some mm-hmm in a stretched or, or, or shrunk version of 52 is not valid. Some parts will go faster and slower. So what if else? The change, um, Sorry. If if the object is moving in
2: space, mm-hmm. then like, change changes distance and then it changes speed. Okay.
1: Yeah. So you so if it's moving in some in a perspective, for example, it's not so bad because you can rotate the image, and again it will become. So that's not acceleration. That's still constant speed.
2: Oh, it's acceleration in the image plane, like
1: but in the real world, it's still constant speed. So you can you can play with those tricks. You can either go to object space or you can come back to image space to make sure there is no acceleration. It's all linear.
2: So does this technique still work if you're moving in multiple directions at once over the duration?
1: So if you have in you know, a multiple cars for example and they're all independent, then it's fine because I can say this car is going this way, that car is going this way. As long as it's moving in a straight line at a constant speed, you're okay. But if the two cars overlap. Yeah. What happens? Our model fails again. Right? So if two cars are partially overlapping during the exposure, it's possible, but it's more challenging because you have to know exactly how fast the two cars are moving. Yeah. Sorry, when do you need to know uh, how fast the car
2: is moving? When you're setting up your shutter?
1: No, no. When you're se- Okay. So when you're setting up your shutter, if the car is moving really slow, and you don't expect it to blur by 52 pixels, and you expect it to blur by only 10 pixels, then using a 52 sequence is a overkill. Okay. Maybe you should use a new sequence that's only about 10 long or 11 long, right? But so, it's just like…
2: that's just so you can get more
1: line. That's, no, that's so that it's most optimal for that setting, yeah. right? So, it's like setting an exposure time. You know, when I take a picture, the camera automatically decides what the exposure time should be. Similarly, should look at the speed of how things are moving maybe with a ultrasound Doppler or whatever. And it says, you know, things are not moving at all. So I should not use the flutter shutter at all. And things are moving very slowly. Maybe I should use a 10 long sequence. Or things are moving a lot. Maybe I should use a 52 sequence. And, so and, and to answer your other question, where you need to do is when we solve the system, we need to know how long the blur, blur is, which is true in other cases as well. You know, you need to know how, how much the blur is. Another major disadvantage is, let's say, uh, you know, I want to take this bottle and if I just rotate this and motion blur that, it will not work. For any point in the front that you're looking at, it will work. But the point that was in the back, that out of the 52 sequence, maybe for the first 10, it was occluded and the remaining 42, it was seen. You have to know exactly when, when that point became visible during that 52 window. So, in general, the technique works well when, you know, kind of things are moving naturally. But if somebody wants to do, you know, this kind of an experiment um, or, or, you know, move things behind an occluder and move out, those are very challenging scenarios. So can you combine both uh, horizontal and vertical in the one mass? Uh, vertical horizontal is fine. You can, it doesn't matter. It could be moving vertically. You basically, your, your point spread function the blur function will be vertical rather than horizontal. Yeah, no, I mean, but if you have a, a
2: combined, you know, motion, you know, vertical and
1: horizontal, you have to encode this in the mass? No, no, no. So, let's say there are two cars, one so is moving… One diagonally on a image
2: plane, right? That's
1: fine. If, as long as it's in any one direction, it's okay. So, let me draw it. But if you take a short turn, you can Yeah,
0: exactly. So, you know, you, you have, have to
1: assume that, that the point… The basic assumption is that if you take any point in the scene… Moving in a straight line. That's it. And if you have an object and every point of that object is moving in a straight line, you're okay. It doesn't matter which direction and what speed. So this doesn't help at all with any with image stabilization of somebody holding the camera. It helps as well. So if you have, let's say, you know, you have a camera shape and I take a picture of an LED and it creates you know some curve like that. Yeah. Because of tension If I know that curve, maybe I can put a gyro, mm-hmm. then I can again figure that out. Okay. so the, the 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 problem here really is the point spread function, or the blur function, is very critical, and this is what we're going to study about, you know, half of the class. And the and the concept is very very uh, very interesting because uh, light is linear, so imaging is very linear. What happens to a point happens to rest of the object. So if I have a car that's moving, and I tell you how exactly one point on that car is behaving in the image, I can tell you automatically how rest of the car is behaving in that image. Right? Because it's going to, all of it is going to have the same spread in the image. So you can either, for for experiments, you can just put you know an LED on the car and see how that LED moves, and that tells you everything about it. So this, and I'm sure you use this trick and in other scenarios, where you you, know, you look at a, a, a very small impulse uh, and see how it responds. It's also like an impulse response. Those of you in audio, you know, you might do a chirp and see how the room uh, reverberates or echoes. Um, and, and when you do, uh, when you're trying to find a speed of a car with a, with a radar, you send a chirp, send a um, a very small impulse, and it bounces and comes back. Right? Point spread function for your, your depth of, um, uh, time of flight system. Uh, so that's the same concept here. We're just going to put an LED in the world, take a picture, and see how it goes. And this whole field of coded imaging is basically engineering of the point spread function. So if you take an ordinary camera, a film camera, and take a picture, you have no control over how light is spreading when something is moving, or a focus uh, has different color spectrum, and so on. And a coded imaging basically means you want to control how something is spreading on the image. So you want to engineer actively how that happens. So in this particular case, a point that was uh, moving created a blur that looked like this, and by engineering the time points per function, instead of looking at it like that, it's going to look like that. right? It's going to look like dashed points. And then it just turns out that this one is easier to deal with than this one. That's the basic concept. Engineering or actively changing the points per function. So this is very counterintuitive because You would say, let me just build the best lens and the best uh, exposure time and so on that kind of mimics the human eye. Um, And once I have that, I have the best possible picture. But when it comes to actually extracting information from that scene, it turns out you need to spread, you need to uh, uh, um, strategically modify how the camera works so that all the information is somehow preserved. Now, the problem is, even after you are very careful and you have captured that image, uh, it's still going to be somewhat garbled. It's going to be mixed in. But that's where the co-design comes in. So, so, once you have this image, there is some hope, there is some computational technique that will allow you to go from here to here. Okay, And this is what kind of separates an animal eye from a computational eye, because in most scenarios, uh, an animal eye is just going to take the picture and try to make the best sense out of it. Uh, But a computational eye is going to apply a lot of processing to this and be able to recover that. As far as I know, you know, animals don't have deconvolution circuitry or deep blurring circuitry. I can look at a blurry image and kind of figure out, I mean, this was a challenge for you, right? So, we have pretty sophisticated eyes, but we're still not able to de-blur what this is. You know, if you have some prior knowledge of how the Volkswagen logo looks like, maybe you can say, okay, maybe that was this. But on the other hand, if I give you this, you're immediately willing to believe that this photo is a blurred version of this photo. And so, kind of thinking about that, there's… when you go from here to here, information is lost. When you go from here to here, we're trying to recover some information, So going from a sharp photo to a blurred photo is easy for us because we just have to lose some information. We have to imagine what it will look like if some of the information is removed from this image. So uh, the, the goal of coded imaging is to come up with clever mechanisms so that we can capture light, but not just by converting photons into electrons, Actually modulating those photons, either blocking them, or attenuating them, or bending them, uh, and so on. So, in that, that's why a computational camera is doing the computation not just in silicon, but also in optics. Okay. So, uh, so that was, you know, what we can do to preserve information uh, in case of uh, motion blur, right? And the circuit is very, very simple. You just take uh, the hot shoe of the flash and it triggers, when you release the shutter, it triggers the circuit and then you just cycle through the code that you care about. What can we do for defocus blur? That was for motion blur. What can you do for defocus blur? We again want to engineer the point spread function. Spatial
0: coding.
1: Spatial coding. How would you, how would you apply Spatial coding. Coded aperture. So this is coded exposure, coded aperture. Very easy. Um, and all you're going to do is put some kind of a code in the aperture of the lens. And this is how actually it started. You know, there's a in, in scientific imaging, especially in astronomy, uh, coded apertures are very well known. And those of you who attended uh, Professor Horn's lecture on Wednesday, that's what he talked about. You know, coded apertures. Uh, so I've been following this for a long, long time. Uh, and I thought, it must be useful for something in photography. Uh, and so I said, okay, let's, let's try to put a coded aperture in, in, the, in the camera and see if we can deal with, you know, focus and so on. And that was back in 2004. Uh, and we tried it for about six months and it just didn't work. It was really frustrating, really, really frustrating. Um, and then, you know, one fine day I said, okay, if you can do this in space... I'm sure we can do this in time as well. And so we did this and this, was, this worked right away within a couple of weeks. So we went ahead and built this whole system and you know, that was the SIGGRAPH paper. And then we said, okay, let's come back and think about this. What's going on? Why don't we get uh, good results? So it took almost two years to realize that to put this coded aperture uh, in, in a camera, there are only a few places where you can put it to get good results. So, out of that came uh, this particular experiment. Uh, So I have a colleague, uh, Jim Kobler, at um, at MGH, and uh, one day he showed me. This is his lens, by the way. uh, He he was telling me this story that um, he was uh, fishing uh, with his camera, and some creature came out of the water, uh, some kind of an alligator, and he lost his balance and uh you know the the boat flipped upside down somehow he managed to you know flip back in and the alligator went away, but he completely damaged his camera that was with him, and it just wouldn't work. So he just took out his lens, which is a standard uh, canon lens, um, and he said, "Let's open it all the way." so you know he ripped open all the all the damaged uh, it had all the mud in it um, and so on and then he just showed me this this thing as is. Um, And it was very fascinating because uh, this is a standard film lens, uh, which of course can also be used with digital camera. And this is a fixed focal length lens. It's a 100 millimeter uh, focal length lens. And when you focus with this, uh, it works in very interesting ways. First of all, it doesn't have a single lens element. It has multiple lens elements. So when you change the focus, it has to do some really interesting things. It has to deal with... Um, uh, chromatic aberration, geometric ab- uh, aberration such as radial distortion and so on. So it has to move all these lenses with corresponding ratios. Okay, So I'll pass this around and you'll see that there are these notches on this lens that are in a parabolic fashion. Okay, So when I rotate this, okay, the internal lenses, the outermost lens and the innermost lens remains at the same place. But all the inner lenses... Move with some particular ratio. It's amazing the way it's 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 structured, right? So the multiple lenses are moving every time I move this, and they're moving because they're guided through these groups. Okay, but there's one particular location that does not change in this lens, and that's the aperture. Okay, so we said let's let's look at this aperture, and uh, back then it was you know a, a still a reasonable looking lens. So we went in our lab and we cut open all the way, um, and you can start putting new apertures in this plane. So, uh, you know, you can cut open that particular guy uh, and start putting this aperture. Now, it turns out the center of projection of this uh, lens is very carefully designed by camera makers uh, to be in the same plane where you put your aperture. So, when you, you know, when you change your f-stop, and decrease it and increase it, it's all happening in the center of projection. Okay? Everybody knows center of projection? So, when you think about a pinhole camera, you make this very simplistic assumption that there's a pinhole and there's a sensor. And when you put a lens, you know, we assume that the center of the lens is the center of projection. That means, all rays can be assumed to go to that point. Okay? When you have a bunch of lenses, here. Where is the center of projection? Is it here or here or here or here? Uh, and of course there is, you can take a, selection, a collection of these lenses and create one single center of projection for, for, for normal cameras. For for Fischer lenses that's not true, but for normal cameras you have uh, the center of projection where you can conceptually assume that all the rays are going through that part. So you can replace this whole thing, by one single lens in a construction. So finding that uh, plane is actually a tricky problem. Uh, and then, in re- retrospect, it's very easy. You know, if the if the lens makers are putting everything there, we should put our coded aperture also in the same plane. So initially, we said, oh, let's put it in the front. Let's put it in the back. We tried all those things, but that creates blur that's not constant all over the image, and it has a lot of issues. <laughs> but we're placing it over there it turns out you get the same blow. So what exactly happens? If you take a picture of a point light and everything is a sharp focus, nothing changes. Okay? Uh, if you have just an open aperture and take a f- picture of a point light, it looks like a disk. Now what's going to happen when you put that, uh, put this code, like this 7 by 7 mask, and take an out-of-focus picture? What will happen to the LED? It's going to look like the code, Uh right? And why is that, why is that happening? So, let's think about a very simple case. So, we have our lens, right? And we have a point light and we we have put some code here. When it's in sharp focus, it doesn't really matter what the code is. Basically, you're blocking about half the light, so the photo will be half as spread. But other than that, it looks like an ordinary photo. Uh, and that's why if you have some dust on your lens and so on, usually it doesn't matter. Unless you have the dust all the way on your front uh, lens because the, the central prediction is over here. So, if the dust was over here, nothing will happen. The image will be slightly darker. But if the dust is all the way in the front, then you start seeing this mess. Anyway. So when it's sharp focus, you just see the point. But let's say now you're out of focus. Here, what will you see? You will see the same exact mask, right? So the ray this ray comes in, it's blocked. This ray goes in, it goes through, this ray comes in, it's blocked, this ray goes through. And so, on. so basically you will see the same that If you put the, put the sensor all the way here, you will see the whole code. As you start moving away, the code will shrink. And eventually when you put it here, we get, get another code. Okay. That's exactly what's happening here. out there is focus, you just see the code. By the way, this is the same idea behind yeah. another project, which yeah. is a yeah. <laughs> So the idea came around the same time of how to make this happen. Um, okay.
2: But wouldn't, wouldn't the um, imaging of this code now still have to be blurred? Like, because so, those are basically multiple apertures that you're seeing.
1: Yeah, so the photo here is nothing, you know. The photo here that you see, you know, is still blurred. Right? It's, it's just that it's blurred in a slightly different way. You know, here it's blurred with that shape. Every point is blurred with that spread function. And you cannot see anything on the resolution chart. But here, if I just uh, remove this guy, you know, that won't work. <laughs> because I'm in a different mode. Right? If I look at this picture, you will see that, so this is a sharp photo, this blurred with disk, and is blurred with uh, that function. You can already see that it seems to preserve slightly more information. But still, you won't be, with your naked eye, you'll not be able to figure out what underlying patterns are. Okay? But it turns out, after deep blurring, you can. All right. So then you can do these simple tricks, where, you know, the person you are interested in is out of focus, uh, but then you can refocus uh, digitally. So this is the input photo, and this is the output okay? So the same exact trick, which is, in in case of motion, we created a point spread function that was engineered in one dimension, right? And here we are engineering a point spread function that's two-dimensional. So, here we know that the the Fourier transform of this 1D 52 length vector is broadband. It has energy at all the frequency. What can we say about this? It's Fourier transform. What can we say? First of all, it's 7 by 7. So, its Fourier transform is also 7 by 7. When it's 52, its Fourier transform is 52. Long. It has, uh, it's more distributed instead still just all being near the center. So, in 1D, this is what we saw, right? Its Fourier transform is flat. So, there are 52 entries here, and almost all of them are the same. Now, we're saying, think about the problem in 2D. and what's the Fourier transform of this? So, the first for this one, the Fourier transform is DC and it's flat. And then if you kind of take that in 2D, right? so I have some code. I'll give you a hint. If I just take a square aperture, like a traditional one, and take a Fourier transform, it will look, so the Fourier transform of this one Look something like this, right, Up here, so putting on some of this one, if I take the cross section here, it's going to look the same, same thing here, for a square aperture, and now we're saying for this crossword puzzle shaped pattern, it should be easy, right, it's going to look just like this one. So the Fourier transform of 7 by 7 will have a peak in the middle. So the 2D Fourier transform will have a peak in the middle, but rest of the values will be constant. And that's the magic of a broadband code. So by placing a broadband code, suddenly we have an opportunity to recover all the information. So it seems very very um, uh, long-winded right? If all I wanted to do was create a photo from which I can de-blur to get sharp photo why do I need to think about all this theory right and the reason is when I think about point spread function uh, it's just traditional signal processing it's a convolution and so on and it's much easier to think about convolution and uh, uh, deconvolution in frequency domain than in, in primal domain and in communication theory everything is in frequency domain We think about carrier frequencies of radio stations in frequencies. We say, my FM channel is at 99 megahertz and 100 megahertz and so on. Uh, And we think about guard bands and and, uh, audio bands and everything in frequency domain. And that's because it's signal processing. It's the same thing that's going on here. Any convolution, deconvolution, much easier to think in frequency domain. Although all the analysis in the frequency domain, at the end, the solution is very easy. Just flutter the shutter, or just put a coded aperture, you know. It's extremely simple solution to, to achieve that. Okay. So those are all good things about uh, coded aperture. Uh, what are some bad things about coded aperture? What are some disadvantages here? It's very similar to the aperture. So the half light. the light. Very good. And when that's when 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 you talk to people who build cameras and you tell them, they say, no, 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 that's not allowed. Losing half the light. Yes? Oh, the, bouquet is kind of the bouquet is at least... Depends on your... I mean, for an for, average for consumer, <laughs> I don't know whether this matters. But you're right. If you're looking at something that's... You know, we have bright lights in the scene, at a distance, you know, take out a photo, they will all look like this. And you could, we could put parts yeah. in it or like... Right, know. yeah, I was thinking... Maybe, I mean, that's totally <laughs> it. Uh, so nice so, so uh, an interesting art problem is how do you create... How do you create a mask that visually looks aesthetic visually yeah. but is mathematically also invertible? Yeah. Right. Hmm. Other disadvantages mm. or, or, or challenges? Not really disadvantages. disadvantage. Remember in the motion case we had to know how much the motion is. What do we need to know here? How much the blur is and what is that function of? When it's in plane of focus it's sharp. When it's out of plane of focus it's blurred.
0: But, but the, the size of
1: the blur is dependent on what,
0: depth.
1: the depth, but not just depth, depth from the plane of focus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's an extra parameter you have to estimate somehow. Maybe you can use a range finder or something like that, or, or just a software. The methods you can employ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't you just try to refer, assume something? Try to see to to if contrast. Yeah. 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 So you could do that. It yeah. doesn't work that well, but but you're right. That would be another way to another way mm-hmm. to try this. You can just maximize your like hard edges in the image. Exactly. That's what you would do like in a light field when we did the refocusing. That's the trick we used, right? We said, okay, let me try to refocus. I don't care about the depth. When it comes into sharp focus, all my my edges, that must be the right depth. Unfortunately, it doesn't work out in this case. And we won't go into the detail, but the, the main reason is that because it's coded aperture, no matter where you refocus, it still looks like it has very high frequencies that makes it challenging. Yes? Oh, exactly. So you need to find this 7 by 7 pattern or in the previous case, the 52 pattern and you, you know, take a random sequence, take its Fourier transform to see if it's flat. If it's not flat, you oh, go to the next one. Oh, so this sequence. is right? So it's not like a
0: pretty mathematical so, this? so
1: the initial, that's what I did. I said, wow, you know, it can't be that bad. You know, 2 to the 50, I mean, it's 52 element long and I know some of them, I only want to take the ones in which about half of them are Once. ones and half of them are zero so it can't be that bad so you know i wrote a matlab script and i said you know by the time i come tomorrow morning i'll find a really good code and i came back next morning nothing had happened i waited whole day it's still running and you know it, it never came out of that so 2 to the 52 is a, is you know it's pretty <laughs> challenging yeah. Your yeah so so we, sorry where's your new cluster, we need it. Exactly. But even if you use a cluster, it's still a pretty big <laughs> number. So you can you can do some approximations. So you can start with some code and do kind of a gradient descent and so on. Yeah. Uh, does the hardware code or anything, is that
0: applicable here?
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, actually, I after we did these two projects, uh, I attended Professor Hans' lecture on computational imaging, which I highly recommend, by the way. Uh, it's, it's terrific. And... Um, uh, there are all these theories about how to create different codes for different applications. Uh, so Hadamard code, which uh, we, we learned about uh, a few weeks ago, or uh, so-called broadband codes, you know, they all have polynomial solutions and, and this and that. There's no good solutions for 2D, but for, for 1D, there's some really good solutions uh, to, to come up with them. And even for 2D, for certain dimensions, uh, they call it one more four or three more four because prime numbers can be one mod four, or basically when you divide by four, the the remainder can be one or three. Uh, And there are certain sequences. There are beautiful mathematical properties of which sequences could have broadband properties and which may not. Uh, So it turns out you cannot, there's a little bit of cheating going on here. So you cannot really use the broadband code here either to give you the best result. You can call them broadband because their behavior is broadband. But the traditional codes, co- codes called MURA code, M-U-R-A, multiple uniform redundant array. They were invented not very long ago, a bit 20, 30 years ago, um, and they used in 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 CDMA and and many other um, astronomical um, imaging applications. And they have similar properties of being, if you take strictly frequency transform, it's it's broadband. The problem is. Uh, in many of those uh, example, many of those applications, uh, your convolution is actually circular. So you apply the filter, and then when you go off the edge, you apply the filter to the beginning of the signal. Okay. Uh, this particular filter is actually not circular, but it's linear. So when you you apply the filter here, when you start applying the filter at the end of the image, you don't go back to the front of the image, right? Because clearly, if I put an LED here and you get out of focus. If I put an LED here, you'll only get half of that. The rest of the half is just blocked. It's not going to magically appear over here. So that's the difference between linear convolution and circular convolution. It turns out for circular convolution, the math is very clean and beautiful and, you know, this Mura course work. But for linear convolution, you know, there's no good mechanism. So we came up with our own code code, called RAT code, R-A-T, which is... After the three co-authors, oh, Raskar, Agrawal, and Tumbling. So,
0: how did you find
1: that? Uh, by doing the search. Just doing the search. Yeah. Okay. I mean, but, but it's not it's not it's not a brute force search. Yeah, it was it's an, an, an intelligent. The, In the, and if, so if you was, you know included enough
2: padding there, mm-hmm. wouldn't you be able to use circular convolution? Yeah, I mean,
1: circular convolution. I mean, linear convolution is basically circum- circular convolution with a lot of padding of zeros. Yeah, because you said then the map would be easier, right? But then it's too large. I mean, finding yeah. a code that's, that's you know, 7 long or, or maybe 30 long is okay. Finding a code that's 1,000 long is nearly impossible.
2: So the difference between Muda and Rad is only on the edges or is it all over the picture?
1: It's only the fact that one is linear convolution and one is circular convolution. Okay. Yeah, I
2: think it's, it's pretty amazing that this could be that because, I mean, if you start just... Having very simple patterns like square, like say you know, if you just draw this square inside the other square, you get the Fourier transform, you all And yeah, all
1: over the place. So yeah, so it it seems like you can just use any random sequence and get a similar property, but actually it doesn't work. The chances of a random sequence doing the right thing for you is very very low. (laughs)
2: It's (laughs) sort of. Astronomy people were already using
1: mm-hmm. so, Yeah, They were using this for the Were they also deep learning? So, in, mo- in in astronomy, you have circular convolution. Because they use either two Meura tiles and one sensor or one Meura tile and two sensors. So, they have a circular convolution. <coughs> so, so, all right. If you, you tile at the aperture, it will be like the astronomical coded image. If, repeat that. If you tile the mask at the aperture, uh-huh. Currently mm-hmm. you are using single tailored temperature. Right. So if you tile as duplex. If you tile the temperature, you'll get really horrible frequency response, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Because if you put two tiles, that means certain frequencies are lost. I mean it's saying there if I'm if I'm understanding um, this right. I mean basically by taking the
2: DC coefficient,
1: you're reconstructing almost everything. No, 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 not DC coefficient, because if you look here all the high spatial freq- I mean, it's, the whole image is not one value. Yeah, but, but,
2: but look at that. That's the, the, you know, the spectrum of your… your right. Prototype. No, but there is a
1: non-zero value at other frequencies.
2: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know… You no, know, no, that's but very important. Yeah, but taking but that you could get a very good approximation.
1: Yeah, right? but if you, you know, to a naive, uh, naive consumer, this photo and… So, look at this part, okay? This photo and this photo looks almost the same, right? And remember, in this photo, many of those frequencies are lost, right? Uh, And in this photo, those frequencies are not lost because all the frequencies are preserved. Uh, But that's because our eye is not very good at thinking about what the original image could be, given either this one or the previous one, right? So given this, I can challenge you, you know, that you'll not be able to predict that it has all this structure. from here. You cannot predict that you have all the structure.
2: So how would you describe the mass as a Basically, you spread the energy, you know, sort of uh, over many frequencies but, you know, varies all coefficients. Is is that… Exactly. It's it's
1: about, depending on the code, it's about one-tenth or one-twentieth of the original power of that frequency. So you get significant attenuation. So, you know, the results are not perfect, right? If you if you look here, right. right? It's not it's not perfect results, whether it's here or or here, right? Mm-hmm. Look at this, you know. It's I wouldn't call it photographic quality yeah, yet,
0: but, yeah, no. but
1: okay. if you apply very simple. By the way, these are raw results. There is no median filtering or smoothing or anything. It's just pure, a x equals b, x equals yeah. a backslash b. Results. Yeah, but, but just
2: the fact that you know the mass, that you
1: Yeah, it's it's fun, right? It's it's. What's amazing about coded imaging is that the math is elegant and beautiful and sometimes complicated, but the implementation is very easy. At the end, all I have to do is put this code or shutter it and very easy to explain. Uh, My previous boss used to say, the best ideas are the ones that are easy to explain but difficult to conceive. Uh, All right, so let's uh, move on. Uh, Okay, let, let me finish this one. So this is just one way of we only saw two ways of engineering the points per function: one in motion and one in focus, right? But there are many others. We, some, we saw some of them uh, over the course of the semester, where um, you know you can put, for example, a special filter uh, in the lens so that you get blur that's independent of depth. Question:
2: Yes, go ahead. You had this binary mask, right? what if the
1: mass was not binary? if you have some innovation by the border so that you could sort of approximate some of the right so what would we have so that's a very good question so let's see let me get this up first okay so uh, if the function was Uh, If the function was continuous, right? So in case of Flutter Shutter, we didn't have much of a choice. It's either opaque or transparent. So it's one or zero. But in case of uh, uh, aperture, yes, you know, it doesn't have to be opaque or transparent. It could be uh, uh, continuous valued. And um, initially, actually, I and my co-author, Amit Agrawal, very smart guy, we always had these arguments about, you know, maybe continuous is better, maybe binary is better. And he continued to believe that continuous is better. Uh, But it turns out, and we still don't agree with this, by the way. Uh, And, you know, nobody has written this down. Uh, It turns out that for any continuous code, there is a corresponding binary code that will do an equally good job so far. Um, And that's because um, in a binary code, you get to play with the phase function. I won't go into the detail. But because because here we are only showing you the amplitude, or the Fourier transform but not the phase. Mm-hmm. So you get that extra degree of freedom to play with. So if you play with the right phase then it turns out you can always have a binary function. Mike?
2: Anyone try to combine the, uh, COVID-19 and COVID-19?
1: That's a great idea. Um, people talk about it but um, nobody has done it. It's just one of those things. <laughs> um, it's just one of those things. And you know it's like we are sick of it, so we don't want to do it. But, uh, but I think it's worth worth trying. Uh, and and because those are orthogonal motion blur, so here's here's a great uh, thought experiment, right? Uh, so Mike's question was: there could be something that's moving, so it's motion blur, but it's also out of focus. Okay, is can you use both at the same time and record? The line, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's one fourth of the line, but let's not worry about that. Okay. <laughs> Expand. <laughs> orthogonal technologies yeah. basically. Exactly. So, so, it's, so really, it's amazing because, control because control motion control is time, time and defocus is space. They're completely orthogonal. So you know you can you can play with it. it's it's it's, it's, it's very interesting. But still motion is being represented by space on the... Yeah, eventually you have a 2D projection. Yeah. So so that's very interesting. All right. So um, the point spread function, uh, you know, although I and my team were the first one to do that in kind of a graphics vision domain, people have been trying to do that since mid-90s in imaging. And there was a very classic paper by uh, Cathy and Dowski and others, for so-called wavefront coding. and a lot of it is actually being used in cell phone cameras. Uh, and what they do is they put this phase mask uh, between the object I mean on near the lens so that and we saw this in the beginning of the class, so that the image does not come into sharp focus ever. instead of that it, it feels it's like a set of straws. Imagine these are all straws that are coming in and you just twist them, okay? So, the top one kind of goes at the top, uh, sorry, at the bottom, the bottom one goes at the top. And when you you think about the the cross-section of all the straws, it's kind of cylindrical when they all come together. Okay, so I'm going to take all these straws or maybe strings if you want to think about it, and I'm going to twist them so that they remain cylindrical. So, if I put my sensor here, if the image is out of focus by this width, if I put the sensor here, it's still out of focus, but by the same width. So, no matter where you are, the image is out of focus, but by the same amount, okay? And you say, well, what's, what's good about that, you know? <laughs> it's always out of focus. But it turns out, the wavefront coding, as they call it, but you can think of this, now we know what light field. So, you know, this is just a, a, a unique light field of the scene. It turns out that from that, you can recover images uh, like this. So, this is open aperture. Sorry, I don't have a picture. But we discussed it in the class. So I hope you remember that. I missed that picture. We saw this right in the very first class, by the way. Um, And the benefit of that, it turns out, is that it preserves the spatial frequencies and it has the benefit that no matter which depth you are at, you have the same defocus blur. So the disadvantage of coded aperture was that you need to know what the depth was to be able to de-blur. But now, because it's independent of depth, you can just apply the same deconvolution and get back a sharp image. So, whether, you know, if I hold my cell phone camera, whether I'm here or here or at infinity, I get the same moment of blur, same point spread function. Uh, and from that, you can deconvolve and get an extended depth of field that goes from very close to the lens to infinity. So, Uh, Omnivision, which bought this company, um, CDM Optics, which is named after Kathy Towski and somebody. Um, Those are the the two professors at uh, Colorado. And last one, I forget. Um, That was just bought by Omnivision, um, which is a big cell phone. I mean, big imaging company, most of the business is cell phones. And they acquired the company and immediately laid off all the smart people who invented this. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sad uh, because you know that part is done. So they want, they want, they just wanted the technology. Uh, and it's in a lot of cameras. There's another company called Tessera, which has a very similar solution. Um, but what they do is so this one. Basically, what it does, and we discussed this, I think, in the beginning, uh, the wave encoding, is they are simply placing. Uh, an addition here so that this part of the lens will focus an image here this part of the lens will focus in the This one focuses here So the top of the lens has a short focal length, it focuses here The second one focuses here third one focuses here fourth one focuses here this one focuses here Here so, you can imagine the main lens has certain focal length and we're just going to add a little bit of additional focal length to each piece. Okay. That's why you have focal length f1, f2, fn and then they're going to focus that And this is the, the twist that also was so, this will continue here. This will continue here and so on. But within this region, the thickness will be about the same. Okay. So, you can either think of it as adding small lenslets on top of the main lens, right? Or the way they do it is they actually put one single sheet that looks like that, okay? An additional layer of, of uh, uh, so-called phase mask. And a face mask basically means um, you are changing the face of incoming light. And as you know, if you have a piece of glass and light is going through, um, it's going to slow down here. And then again, it's going speed. That means you basically slow down the light a little bit and that's what a glass lens is doing. If you have at the top of the lens, if the light goes through, it doesn't slow down that much. If you go through the middle of it, it slows down for a bit. Right? And that's why as, you, as we learned right at the beginning, if you have something very far away, this slows down very little bit, so it goes over here, and then this goes over here and it Everything just works out with the traditional things. But by adding this extra piece of glass, you're saying, I'm going to speed up and slow down and slightly be I'm going to take this so This is the CDM Optic solution. What the Tesla guys did, which is actually bought another company, uh, an Australian company, forgetting the name. Uh, so the solution is very similar. Uh, I'm sure they're fighting out in the court right now. Same solution. Instead of putting this particular guy, they are just going to add some extra glass. But mostly in a binary form. Okay. It's just come kind of for discretization of that. So, basically the same solution, but creating different focal length for different power of
2: Yeah. You, although you said, I mean, there is this, this portion there, where, I mean, it does <coughs> yeah, it doesn't very, Right? Right. But
1: uh, what is being blurred at each pixel? Where is... Uh, Independent of the depth, you get the same blur. Yeah, but see, I mean, some guys are focusing, say,
2: you know... At
1: an angle, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Because just like in a traditional camera, even if the point is not on axis but off axis... You still get the same... You still get a disc, right? Which we saw in the...
2: Yeah, you get, you get the disc, but I think at a given pixel, as you just move it back and forth, uh-huh. you're going to get a different color, as you... I mean, a different amount of, uh, you know, the mixture of...
1: The different color. shape, you mean, or different color? Different
2: color.
1: Uh, not really. You guys look at
2: that. I mean, the, the guy who's coming from the top is going to reach at some point...
1: But they all have a... I mean, you're saying because of chromatic aberration? No,
2: just because of the geometry, at least at
1: you're color or shape? I mean... Uh, because there's, well, just to be clear, that we are not adding any color. Yeah, we're just adding more class. Glass. Okay. No, 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 okay, okay. We're just adding more class. So we're bending the rays, but the colors are... You know, for all yeah. practical purposes, they're the same. Yeah.
2: What I find is that uh, maybe some points in the scene mm-hmm. would be mixed, you know, mistured, uh, uh even pieces.
1: Yeah, solution. the effect is very local, remember. The effect is extremely local. So you know maybe you yeah. have a pixel and it gets blurred by I don't know 10 pixels that's it. It's not a global effect. So this picture maybe this particular diagram may be misleading because it seems yeah. like this point is going to go all the all the way. But this is this is very narrow. And you know the blur is only about 10 pixels, no matter where you sensor. So maybe that's what yeah. so if you have a point of axis, it's still going to create an image that's blurred by 10 pixels. So this is, you know, again very counterintuitive where you're going to make the image intentionally blurred. It's just that it's blurred everywhere, right? And then we also saw this one very early on where the point spread function, typically when something goes in and out of focus, it looks like a point and then when it goes out of focus, it looks like a disk. If it goes out of focus the other way, it still looks like a disk, but this group at, uh, again at Colorado have… When you see sharp focus, you see two dots mm-hmm. for similarity. And as you go in and out of focus, then the two dots rotate. So they call it rotating point spread function. Is
2: this the same group that
1: developed the Uh It's not the same group, but same university and the same neighborhood. Okay. What was the reasoning for
0: developing the rotating uh, point spread function?
1: Uh, Doug's question is, what's the benefit of this? Just <laughs> you would have used it by now.
0: Yeah.
1: What's the benefit of this strange point spread function? I
0: mean, you know if you're out of focus in which direction. Yeah. Yeah. From the focal point. That's one.
1: And you know you're But do you know, how, by how much? Yeah, you know by how much? Yeah, by how much because. Because we'll it's an angle. The so, the goal here was no matter where you are, your point spread function is the same. The goal here is exactly opposite. If you go slightly out of focus, you get a very different point spread function. So, this one they use in microscopy uh, with fluorescent dye. So, when you're looking with microscope, depending on what the depth of your uh, of your tagged particle is, the point spread function will look very different. So, you can estimate the depth directly looking at the orientation of those two dots. So, that's, that's very very interesting. But
2: uh, can that guy
1: keep going all the way and then at some point you can No, it doesn't sure work. After some point, they stay the same.
0: They,
1: they, it, this is only the in the sweet region.
0: So, have they been able to like reconstruct three-dimensional neuronal structures or? Are they yeah, that's systems?
1: why they're getting a lot of press, and they're doing some amazing gotcha. work. Uh, Rafael Bashun and, and Prasanna, so they have a lot of collaborations, and now they're able to um, measure the z dimension yeah. uh, down to about ten nanometers. Wow. The x, y still remains, you know, traditional microscope, one micron, half micron. But the z dimension is 10 nanometers. It's very new. They're still working on a lot of these concepts. Okay, so let's very briefly look at uh, compressive sensing because uh, something you should be familiar with. Okay, so here's here's an idea that uh, received. Uh, a lot of publicity. It was even the the ten emerging technologies by a very reputed magazine. Uh, I hope you don't believe any of those things. Um, <laughs> it's a very cool idea, by the way. You know, as, as a scientist, I really like it. But, you know, uh, when somebody like Technology Review or Wired Magazine says, you know, top 50, top 10, of course, I wish I, I'm listed among them. But <laughs> at the same time, because, you know, it has… It has good uh, good side effects. But anyway, this single pixel camera was listed as one of the big things in 2005 uh, by Technology Review, which a magazine I really like, by the way. And the idea is, instead of taking one single photo, what you're going to do is, let's say that's your scene, you're going to turn on, you're going to take a single photo detector and aim it at a set of micrometers. Okay. And in the simplest case, what you will do is you turn off all the micromirrors, that you know, light goes this way, and there's only one micromirror where the light goes this way. Okay? So the single photo detect. This is like the dual photography we saw right in the beginning, where you can see that card. Uh, if I just turn on the, this one micromirror, by the way, this is what's in your uh, DLP projectors, the Texas Instruments, uh, Digitalized Processing, Micromirror displays. So it's very easily available. Uh, you will just receive light from the scene for that one pixel, right. So, this, this scene is being imaged on this mirror array and you just go to turn on this one pixel. And then next picture you go to turn on the next pixel and so on. And one at a time if you go through this million pixels you will get a million, a megapixel image, right. But of course the light will be very little uh, if you just turn on one pixel. So, now we'll do some Hathamad multiplexing which we saw a few classes ago, where you go to turn on about half of them, take one reading, turn some other random combination of half of them, and take a picture, and so on. And again, after now about half of them are contributing to the photodiode, so the photodiode is you know very well exposed. And you can take a very short exposure reading. And again, if you take millions of such readings, you can recover this picture. Okay, that's the that's the concept. Um, does it exponentially increase the number of readings you have to take? No, just linearly. If you want two megapixels, then you need to take a million readings. Right? Um, so, the claim this group made at Rice University was that if I want to take a million pixel image, I don't have to really take a million readings. I can do much fewer than million readings. And the claim is that Imagine if you had this photo as a JPEG, you know, when I when I compress it, it might take up only about, you know, tens of thousands of bytes, so let's say it takes up 10,000 bytes. So if I can represent the image with 10,000 bytes, and I'm going to take a photo and compress it down to 10,000 bytes, <coughs> why can't I just directly measure only 10,000 values in the scene so that, you know, I save on everything, right? So, I can take this picture effectively with just 10,000 pixels, but recreate a 1000000 pixel image. Yeah. And that's where the concept of compressive sensing or compressed imaging comes up. You want to take something that is much higher resolution, but recover it in a compressed way, where instead of taking the picture with a hardware and compressing a software, you're going to compress it while sensing so how does it uh, how does it look mathematically? Um, so let's see. Um, let's see if there's an easy way to explain this in a shorter time. So you know that's the trick we're going to do. You know we're going to take about half the pixel and you know measure the intensity and so on. So those are our measurements. So our unknown image is X, and we're going to take a lot of these projections. This is the Hough matrix for those of you familiar. And these are our measurements. So we're going to say, given these measurements, I'm going to recover my original image. Okay. Now, uh, when you think about a, uh, a natural image, uh, the claim is that if you just use uh, DCT, some Fourier coefficients, then you can compress the image and represent them with uh, very few bytes—only 10,000 bytes, only 10, bytes uh, for a megapixel. So <coughs> Let's say your Fourier coefficients are here, and this is your image. That means that if I just put a Fourier transform here, then I can convert the coefficients into the image, right? And the the number of values we require to represent an image are much fewer than the million values we require here. So we have million values here, or only about ten thousand values here. Okay. And the claim is that by using this Understanding that my image can be represented in some transform basis, in this case Fourier basis, using very few coefficients, can be exploited while I'm sensing. Okay, this is your optics. This is your map. Let's see if I have another slide. Okay. So, uh, so that's the that's the that's the theory of uh, uh, composite sensing. That using some basis, I can transform the image and uh, measure in, in, uh, with fewer measurements. And there are certain cases where it is really true. You have signals that can be compressed. A very, easy, uh, a very classic example is in communication where uh, if you are doing software radio, where you have you know, a huge band of frequencies and uh, software radio, instead of tuning it with, uh, with uh, electromagnetics, you just capture the whole signal and then software, you can listen to any, any station. Okay. Um, and, you know, the Nyquist theory says if your band is, I don't know, uh, 100 megahertz, then you must capture it with uh, a signal that has a bandwidth of 100 megahertz. But we know that in communication, not all bands are actually occupied. Many of the bands are empty, right? Only certain frequencies have a signal. So people have come up with very clever mechanisms where they realize that you don't have to capture a 100 megahertz signal, but only some of them are, are actually on. Again, there is a Fourier transform, because in communication, that's, that's, that's natural. And by doing that, they're able to sample this uh, effectively software radio with a, a detector that doesn't have to measure 100 megahertz wide signal. Okay. It turns out, for images, this doesn't work. Okay. And that's because there is no transform that allows you, no linear transform that allows you to represent an image with very few coefficients. When you do JPEG, it does frequency transform, but after that it does a lot of other things. It says, you know, perceptually the higher frequencies are not as important, so I'm going to represent them with fewer quantization bits. Or certain values are too small, I'm just going to truncate them. So all this operation, changing quantization bins, uh, truncating or thresholding, are all non-linear operations. They're not linear operations. So it turns out there is no transform that will allow you to represent an image with fewer coefficients. So in general, this scheme doesn't work. Okay? But you will continue to see people who come to you and say, you know, I have this magical thing I just heard called compressive image sensing, and that will just solve my problem. There are certain images like cartoons that can be represented with very few samples because they have flat regions, sharp boundaries and flat regions. But a natural image, unfortunately, cannot be transformed uh, that easily. And you can talk to Rohit and he'll tell you all the details of uh, the dangers of uh, compressions. So the single pixel camera is just a hypothesis but not… Yeah, but at the same time it was the first one uh, that kind of allow people to visualize or, or kind of conceptualize in their mind what compressive sensing might do. This idea is cool but how, how feasible or how important it is to have a single sensor rather than having a wide array of sensors. So what this is achieving is basically allowing it to build a camera with a single sensor. Right. But do we really want it just to do compressive sensing? I mean, I, from a scientific point of view, if somebody can build this and show that you can take fewer measurements and, and recover the image, that's a breakthrough. Um, how you use it, I agree with you, that, you know, in terms of practical implementation, maybe this is the best application, maybe it's not, uh, and, and so on. But that's kind of a kind of business reason.
2: Will this be faster than uh, a, an array of sensors?
1: Again, in terms of, in, in practice, you know, both of you are right. There are very few benefits. Um, but there are if you, if you just have compressive sensing you realize it's a it's a it's a very, very active field.
0: So um, again maybe on a, a different tangent of compressed sensing. Right. Um, what uh, what are the features like what are the people doing in computational photography for feature extraction in the same way that the brain processes certain features or linear wisdom and right. sensing, um, to do kind of a better compressed sensing of content and imaging. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you mean compressing an image or sensing with no, fewer, fewer samples?
0: Sensing with fewer samples. Yeah. So is,
1: so that all kind of gets clubbed into this concept of compressive sensing. Okay. And um, you know, if you think about V one and V V two and visual processing, there's a lot of work that has been done over the last thirty years. There's yeah. you know good work at, at C Cell as well. Um, but that's purely software.
0: Right.
1: And maybe you're asking, you know, can we use well, can we use sensing mechanisms software, that are yeah. similar to our brain yeah. so that we don't you know You don't have to do it in software. Right? Exactly. You know the the secret of success for film or film photography is that If somebody had, given you this problem, you know, before the invention of film, that there is a scene and I want to give you a sensation of the same scene, time shifted or space shifted, you know, there's so many ways you can solve the problem. You know, you can start with the, start with, you know, a reproduction of a photo or you can tap into V1 or retina, you can tap into V1, V2, you can interface that at any point in the pipeline for, you know, human vision. But the simplest solution is to just create that photo on a a passive surface and let the brain do that processing all over again, right? And so it's like a simple impedance match. If I can see the scene and understand it, I can just represent that as is and let it go through. And this is how we have been treating photography all this time. It's a record of visual experience, which is great for humans, but it's not so great for computers, Computers don't understand any of that. And what you're saying is, you know, what computers care about are all these high-level features. And that's why we're going back to the drawing board and saying, you know, let's build cameras that are not mimicking human eye, but actually extracting more information, like depth edges that like we did with multi-flash camera, or uh, additional information with light field cameras or multi-spectral cameras and so on. So, so what, comment. Um, so Rav was
0: asking...
1: Why would you use pixel sensing? When do you have to reduce the number of measurements? Correct. Right. I think one of the problem, like one of the applications of pressure sensing, I don't know. It's debatable whether it's really better or not. Is yes, the tomography, and When you tomography, yeah. Yeah. When you have to recover the, the scan, you want to take as few measurements as possible. So if you can reduce that, pixel tricks, fix. Right? That's one of the current applications of that. Right. This one piece of camera. Really, is just a uh, but. But the benefit of yeah. Tomography, which we studied in the last couple of lectures, is it's a very high dimensional signal.
0: Yeah.
1: And so in a, usually in a high dimensional signal there's a lot of sparsity. There are only few places. Yeah. If you think about you know taking a cat scan of your body, you know, there are only like four or five types of materials. There is muscle, there is you know blood, whatever. There are only five or six things. So it's very it's like a cartoon. Basically. Exactly. In fact, this is interesting because the test it's a 3D it. cartoon. But If you look at it, it looks just like a cartoon. There are some white spots, some black spots, and a sharp. Exactly, sharp, and that's why compressive sensing works very well there. Uh, so, is compressive sensing used in anything commercially currently? A lot of people are getting grants. Um. <laughs> is that a commercial Sorry, enough reason? No, but plus, <laughs> yeah. also I if you put would... put those two words your chances improve so by 50%. I was thinking of this interesting problem that kind of, I guess, extends about what you guys are talking about. So, compressive sensing allows you to take less measurements, but the problem is you need to actually have more information about the scene before you take the measurement, which is another measurement. So, actually, uh, to clarify, the measurements are done in a non-adaptive manner. So, you don't have to know anything about the scene to do this measurement. That's actually one power of... Well, I mean, if you want it to actually succeed... But when you reconstruct... You have to know something about the scene. You have to know in which transform basis it's actually sparse. So is it sparse when you take a Fourier transform? Is it sparse when you take a wavelet transform? It's it sparse when you take gradients? Like in terms of cartoons, it's just gradients. So you have to know that when you do reconstruction. But advantage is at the time of capture, I just use this random basis or Hadamard basis. It, I mean, kind of a modified Hadamard basis. I can just go ahead and sample it. And in software, in reconstruction, I have to worry about some prior information about the scene, well, which is which is great. Well, I think uh, in the case where you're just taking a set style of captures, mm-hmm. that you're limiting yourself in what kind of scenes will be compatible with that capture. So, for, for example, easy. if I just had a scene that's all white, then right. just one capture would be enough. Right? Yeah, but that's because you know something about the exactly, scene. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, but I if if you have if you have this situation. Well, you don't know anything about the scene. Uh-huh. you just use the same exact uh, uh, procedure for sampling. Right, but you don't, then you lose the benefit of taking less pictures. You No, that's the claim is that even if you don't know anything about the scene, you take very few measurements. All you know about the scene is that once you take its transform, some yes. transform is very sparse. Yes. It so can be represented in a compressed way. Right, so, I remember actually a mathematical mapping for this for... Um, Reducing dynamically the number of captures you have to take yeah. while you're capturing it. And but that's an adaptive measure, adaptive yes. measure. Because yes. once you take a picture, you say, let me see what I did not capture, so let's, let me take the next one, next one. That's a at very, at different, uh, very different yeah. problem. Yeah. Well, anyways, the code for it is inside the dual photography thing. Okay. Yeah, somebody did dual photography with compressive sensing. So and, and there it works very well, because again, it's a high dimensional signal, 2D camera, 2D projector. It's four dimensional, but what you're trying to recover is two dimensional. So it works again. So tomography is the same, right? It's 4D capture but 3D representation. Okay. So um, I'm sorry we're not taking a break. Should we take a 30-second break before we
0: yeah. Yeah. move
1: on to uh, two very small topics which is how to write a paper and wishlist for photography.